and welcome to Hello Human, a podcast to explore ideas and feature humans working in AI and technology. Thanks, everybody. Today on Hello Human, we're joined by Karika Roy, who is going to chat with myself and Elizabeth Middleman from Fortress IQ and just talk about women in AI and you need to, to prepare yourself and, and how you get there. So Karika, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great. So my first question, and then I'll hand it over to Elizabeth, is you know, before you started Pipeline, you had previously worked for some well-recognized companies, I think from technology to healthcare to financial services, leading learning and development. How has that prepared you for, for starting your own organization? Well, I think the first thing I worked at, you know, my, my experience is actually more broad than just learning and development. But I think the thing that is probably interesting relative to pipeline is that I'm actually a breadwinner mom who fought to be paid equitably twice and won. The first instance of that, I was on maternity leave with my daughter and my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. Yeah. <laughs> and and when I came back from maternity leave, a day two days after I came back, I was asked to take on a new team. Two weeks later, I was asked to take on a, a, another new team, which meant that I had three teams that I was managing. And my male colleague was asked to take on one additional team. He also received additional compensation for the new team, and I didn't receive anything. And so it's a great opportunity, breadwinner mom for a family of four, called HR and my new boss and said, hey, this is great, very excited about it, but how do you want to make me whole on my compensation? And nothing was really done. So it was kind of a cu- couple months of back and forth. And I thought, well, this there's got to be something that makes this legal. So I did my research and I found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which changed the statute of limitations for equal pay. It was actually the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed into law. And so I called HR and said, well, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? Now, to their credit, they increased my level, increased my pay, and gave me back pay. So certainly it was a story of success. But the question that it led me to was, why did I have to spend my time researching my rights in order to be treated fairly? And it was really in that moment that the journey to ultimately founding Pipeline began. And I, as a breadwinner mom, there was an additional layer for me of why were my children worth less to society simply because their mom was the breadwinner? That, you know, and then and, and we've sort of gone on and done research around breadwinner moms and at Pipeline and found that they have the largest gender pay gap of any women in any cohort of women in the U.S. labor force, which is 66 cents on the dollar. I also inherited two teams, so I inherited all the inequities that existed in those two teams. And I committed to that if you were going to report to me, I would ensure that you had equity of opportunity and equity of pay, that I would do everything in my power to ensure that what I experienced, you did not have to experience. And so when I started Pipeline, what that gave me the ability to do was to take both my lived experience and also the commitment to the people who had reported to me and to do that at scale. You know, we influence uh, hundreds of thousands of decisions each year for uh, people decisions each year. There are people who have gotten pay raises because of the Pipeline platform 
and haven't had to advocate for them. And I've never met them. That's they amazing. have right, and so I have taken my experience and been able to to use that to positively impact other people's lives. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, taking something that you personally went through and turning that into never having to fight that fight again, right? Or never mm-hmm. having to to be in that uncomfortable situation because mm-hmm. it's just an uncomfortable situation, right? Mm-hmm. And I think as women, we tend to not want to be in those situations and it, it's it's hard for us. Well, I'm going to add a little on that because it's not only okay. about women. It is that women inherently understand the risk of speaking up. You know, we have experienced this long before we ever got to the workplace. We experienced it in childhood and school. So that two months of me, you know, trying to negotiate this was that risk of, how assertive am I, do I need to be? And what is the economic downside of being assertive? That is, uh, will I experience retaliation? And what impact will that have on not only my economic security, but the economic security of my family? Mm-hmm. And we see that vetted out in the numbers that retaliation claims have doubled in the last 20 years. So it's not that necessarily that women don't want to be uncomfortable. It's that they understand the downside of speaking up. Yep. I totally get that. Well, thank you so much, Karika, for joining us today. You launched Pipeline Equity back in 2017 and have now created an award-winning business and empire. Would you be able to share a bit more about the story behind Pipeline and the organization's greater mission? Yeah, thank you for calling it an empire. I, I certainly appreciate that. <laughs> uh, that you, sure, I mean, I talked a little bit about my experience. I'll talk a little bit about, more about uh, Pipeline and our, our larger mission. I think one of the things, you know, I talked about my experience, but certainly had a direct impact on Pipeline. I also have family history that has an impact on Pipeline. And then I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about what Pipeline does, which is that I am a first-generation American. I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee And the impact that, and I'll talk a little bit about my dad's story, but the impact that one person in a position of power had on the trajectory of my family and my life was a big catalyst for also why I chose to start Pipeline. My father was a Hungarian refugee, escaped with my three oldest siblings from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. Uh, They walked across a minefield, arrived to a refugee camp in Austria, and less than two months into their stay at the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. And they were on that plane. And so what I was raised with and have all has always been part of my ethos is this idea that one person, like I sit here with you today on this podcast because one person in a position of power said not on my watch, that I will do what I can to make sure this doesn't happen. And because of that, I was really aware growing up of the opportunity that I had and the obligation that I had and so when this happened, this was one other way to really take what had been given to me and to get back. So that's some of the personal family story behind what influenced me to start Pipeline. Pipeline itself and why I founded Pipeline 
I talked a little bit about my broader background. So I am a former programmer, fluent in four languages. I have background in data science, uh, in UI, UX development, worked most of my career either in sales or reporting up to really senior folks in organizations. And what I understood uh, from my experiences were two things. One was that if you wanted to move an issue in an organization, you had to tie it to the financials. That if you didn't tie an issue to the financials, it became it became optional. And the reason is that the number one responsibility of a CEO is to maximize shareholder value. So you've got to tie it to that. That's one. The second is that I understood that we could use advanced technologies such as cloud computing and artificial intelligence to actually accelerate our time toward equity. And so in creating Pipeline, I married those two things together. One was that we actually started with a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And we found that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there's a one to 2% increase in revenue. So this is not only about the right thing to do, it's actually a massive economic opportunity that CEOs and companies who are not focusing on increasing actively increasing equity in their companies are actually constricting their economic pie, their economic footprint. That's one. The second piece of that was that I've worked at a lot of enterprise companies, companies who had 80,000 employees or 170,000 employees who were dispersed across the globe. I understood that if you wanted to do anything at scale in large companies, technology had to be part of that. And so that was really and what Pipeline does is essentially provide using artificial intelligence. It, it essentially ensures that every company is equitable because what is baked into every people decision is equity. You either had the choice to move toward equity or not. And so what we ensure is that each of those decisions are actually equitable for companies and also tied to greater financial performance. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, I know being a head of marketing, anytime I want to go do something, if I tie it to, you know, a business decision around the CFO, if I can get the CFO to understand the return on investment, why it's important, it seems like all of those, those barriers and those barricades seem to fall. So I, I love that, right? That kind of data driven how does this help the business overall, I think is so important. So, so that makes a ton of sense. Question for you on, on your website and the, the recent 2021 retrospective that, that you published, you know, the, the story of gender equity from the, from the past kind of decides mm-hmm. 10 future trends. Can you just give us a little bit of overview of what that is and maybe pick one of those trends that you think might be the most critical? Sure. So I authored the report I actually published the initial one at the uh, sort of at the at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, which was to look at the last 10 years, uh, the last decade of progress toward gender equity. What were the trends and, and if what was possible in the next decade and what we would need to do to actually reach that. And then 2020 hit, which was the first year (laughs) in the new decade. And so all those cracks, particularly around intersectional gender equity, were sitting right under the surface. 
and they all came up, right? Yeah. And so it was, and so the 2021 gender retrospective then provides a 20, essentially a 2020 update to what happened in a given year. There are a few trends, there's mostly not good things, a couple of good things. So the two good things that happened that we saw in 2020 relative to the 10 trends that I identified. One was that the ERA was ratified by its 38th and final state. And the second was that LGBTQ folks got a federal protection under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So those were really, really important and things that we had certainly advocated for. Unfortunately, we also saw some pretty significant setbacks. On a global scale, at the dawn of this new decade, we were 12 years away from reaching gender parity in education for girls, right? And that is really important, not only for an issue of fairness, but it's actually a metric that the military and intelligence organizations use to measure stability. You know, if a country is headed for conflict, one of the leading indicators that they use is girls' education. And if there is a lack of girls' education, that is an indicator of instability in that in that country. Unfortunately, you know, in addition to school closures, what we're seeing now is that it's likely that 15% more girls, you know, from uh, that original number coming into the new decade will remain out of school. That's not good, both for global stability, but also the growth of the economy, the global economy. We saw in the United States in particular, huge fallbacks in both labor force participation of women and the gender pay gap. If you want to look at gender within the economy, one of the ways to look at that is through the lens of labor economics. And that really has three key factors, which is education attainment, labor force participation, and wages. So we talked a little bit about education on a global scale, but the two things that we saw within 12 months is that the labor force participation rate of women was set back 32 years in one year. Oh, wow. That is not only an issue of fairness, it is a massive economic issue Yeah, because prior to the pandemic, if we had continued to increase women's labor force participation, which is what was happening right before the pandemic hit, um, there was another $789 billion on the table for us. Since 1970, women have actually added $2 trillion to the U.S. economy through their increased labor force participation. We were set back so far <laughs> that we lost over a trillion dollars out of our economy just due to women leaving the workforce. That's one. The second is we, the gender pay gap. So that is, or wages is, is we'll just talk about it, about the money coming into women's wallets. Cause it, from a wages perspective, it's also the money coming out of women's wallets, but just the money coming into women's wallets. That was set back 22 years. So we were already at 82 cents on the dollar. The prediction is now it's about 76 cents on the dollar. So, you know, we've got now a widening gap at a time when women and their families can least afford it. There's a myth of, and, and why this matters is not only an issue of fairness. There's, if you just look at it through the lens of U.S. households that have children under the age of 18, Women are the breadwinners in 40% of U.S. households with children under the age of 18. There's 16 million breadwinner moms, 28 million kids. That is an issue. And, and by the way, we did research looking at the gender pay gap for breadwinner moms, and it's 66 cents on the dollar. So as I mentioned, it's the largest gender pay gap of any cohort of women. 
That then is an issue for millions of families. And then you couple that with another 31% of families with children under the age of 18 that rely on mom's earnings for their economic well-being. Now you've got huge gaps and none of the $2 trillion of economic stimulus that went out, like the, for instance, the direct payments that families got was applied. No one applied the gender lens. Oh, wow. So Right. So if you have yeah. less money, we should make up for that gap in the money we're giving you because you probably have less savings. You, yeah. You've you got less more to make up for. You have yeah. more to make up for. Yeah. We also didn't. We just said, well, we're going to do it by adult and child. We didn't look at, you know, for instance, if you've got a single mom with two kids and dual parent household with two kids, their expenses are not all that different. And we didn't we actually didn't account for that difference either. I'll tell you one last thing, just because it's an important piece in understanding that gender equity is not a synonym for women's rights. And that is women are 50 percent of the conversation and men are the other 50 percent. And one of the other real concerning things that we saw in 2020, mental health is largely a men's issue. And I don't mean that women don't have mental health issues. I mean that men, because of how we have sort of structured their role in society, are less likely to get help with mental health. And we see that. And their mental health, 60% of men actually reported that their mental health was negatively impacted by last year. And that should also really concern us because we need to make investments in in men, uh, essentially destigmatizing mental health and ensuring that everyone has access to mental health. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and to your earlier point, so I'm one of those single moms with, I have a 17 year old, she's about to turn 17. And, you know, those numbers are just astounding. And, and you know, when you're kind of in it, right, you don't yeah. realize the magnitude of all those, you know, all those other people that are just like me that have this massive impact on the economy and and their own personal lives. Right. So that's astounding. I didn't know it was that high. We also put it on women. (laughs) We also say, Oh, well, and it's like, no, the numbers don't actually support that. It's not that women are less responsible with money. We're actually better with money. That's what the research shows, right? It's, it's that we have less money coming into our wallets and we have more money coming out. Right. Right. No, that makes, that makes total sense. Again, back to, a math equation, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Back to the numbers it's not magic, and being it's data math. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just math. <laughs> just math. That's so funny. That's funny. Elizabeth, did you have a question? Yes, I think it's so important that you talk about education and looking at the math and the numbers. And I think that, you know, education is critical. And that's where we begin to learn about these issues and understand the terminology of what's going on in the world. So for those that are ready to advocate and learn, where do you recommend that they start? To advocate and learn about gender equity. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a, a, I mean, there's, we've launched three reports. So there's one, the equity for all report, uh, which is a pipeline report. If you go to pipelineequity.com, uh, you can download it there. I've also launched a couple of reports, one, the 2021 gender retrospective. And then in gearing up for the 2020 election, I launched the voting guide, which, which took 15 campaign issues and applied the gender lens. Those are great. They're free. You just need your name and your email address and you can download them. That's where I would start. And you can get my reports on katakaroy.com, K-A-T-I-C-A-R-O-Y.com. They're right on the front page. And we'll link that in the notes as an available resource for our listeners. Thank you. Yeah. No, that's great. You know, and besides doing all this great work with Pipeline, you're also 
a council member for Fast Company Impact, right? And and as I look at how to get more involved, you know, how to have a voice, what's your advice on how to get involved with that kind of thing? And then how do you balance it? You know, how do you balance running a company and then also giving back and 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 being part of these councils that, that are trying to to change the way that the world works right now? Yeah, I don't believe in balance, but I just don't believe in it. I, and the reason why is I think it's a, I, first of all, we only put it up. So I'll answer your question about why, I, how I do the things I do. Okay. I do want to address the balance issue because it's often an issue we place on women. We don't often ask men about work-life balance. We, we, we only typically ask women and there's sort of this assumption that we can't walk and chew gum at the same time or, or what it means to be a good mom or all of those different frames of reference. I, I, you know, for me, I love to work. I enjoy my work. I, I think for my children, what they're able to see is what's possible for them if they work hard. And I think that that matters, right? It matters. I'll just give you one really quick example, and then I'll talk about the Fast Company Impact Council because that's an important uh, one of the important things that I'm involved in. Last year, and you can actually see it up here, I was named the 2020 Colorado Entrepreneur of the Year, not the female entrepreneur of the year, the Colorado Entrepreneur of the Year. And so I was on the cover and one of the uh, photos that they used in that uh, layout in the actual magazine was a photo of myself and Secretary Hillary Clinton. And I had met her doing uh, some work. And one of the things that was very cool, because they send you a huge box of magazines, right? So I've got a bunch of them. And my daughter, who's nine, would take that magazine with her on play dates, obviously pre-COVID, was <laughs> during like we had a controlled group. And she would say, she would like say, oh, look at my mom and look, you know, and, and the, you know, look at my mom with Secretary Clinton. And, and so for her, and then her friends would say, I want to meet Secretary Clinton. And so for her, it was this idea of what was possible for her. Like she could see her mom doing that and therefore she could see herself doing that. So that's why sort of constraining ourselves to what it looks like to be a good mom or balance, it, I think is it's a, it sets us up for failure, right? Because it puts on us what we believe is, or what society believes looks like a good mom. I don't think my kids think I'm a bad mom because I don't, you know, I don't make their lunches, right? right. They, that's not their archetype of what a good mom is. Yep. And I, yeah, so, and I think it's all relative, right? And I love that. I, one of my mantras with my daughter is see her, be her, right? This, this, this concept, if you, if you can see it, if you can see other women doing this, you can do it too. And I think it's so important. I mean, my daughter's almost 17 and I've had that mom guilt for years traveling and, you know, trying mm -hmm. to, trying to climb the, the corporate ladder. And at the end of the day, like, I think our relationship is so special because she mm -hmm. has this amount of respect for what I do. And, you know, now as she's cho you know, choosing her career path and looking at colleges, you know, that's super important to her. And she's mm -hmm. like, look, I can do whatever I want to do. I could go be a dermatologist. I could go be, you know, whatever it is. And there's, there's no filter mm -hmm. for her right now. And, and that's, that's what I hope that this next generation of, of children are, are able to see, right. There's less and less of that filter. So that's, that's right. Great. Yeah. I mean, my kids don't even have that. I mean, for them, it's like, oh, being a good mom is having agency over your economic well-being. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. that's a good thing, right? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm involved in the Fast Company Impact Council. It's a great group of folks. I've been a Fast Company contributor for a couple of years now. And um, it was a way to, I think, continue 
it's not only giving back, it's also about talking about what's important and narratives and intersectional gender equity and how we tie that to economic impact. And, you know, for instance, uh, part of what the Impact Council influenced was this content thread for Fast Company around the first 100 days of Biden's presidency and what was important and what did we want to see. And and so it's the ability, I mean, maybe it's giving, I, I suppose you could say it's giving back, but it's about continuing to use your voice in service of other people. You know, I, I, that's, and to bring what I know to bear in a larger conversation. So it's a great opportunity. And obviously I'm a big fan of Fast Company. That's amazing. Well, well, taking a look at the future, you know, of your your own success, your own career, and of course, Pipeline, do you see any other ways for Pipeline to use AI or technology to further its mission? That's a great question. I do. I I was debating how much we would uh, we would actually release at this point, but I do. I mean, I think that given what Pipeline has developed, the ability to ensure that every people decision is equitable. There are additional ways that we can use our technology or broaden who we're serving uh, to ensure equity across every people decision and, and really have a core part in growing the economy. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. I, I hope there's there's more companies like that, right? And, and more ways that we take some of these, these you know, social issues, right? Not just issues in the workplace or, you know, selling more software or <laughs> selling more bits, right? But but how do you actually level the playing field and use technology to, to do that? I think it is super interesting. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is that, you know, for us, obviously making money and making a lot of money is really important to us. No question about that. We're a venture back <laughs> firm. No question. For us, it is a means to an end. It is not an end in and of itself. For us, if we make more money, it means that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have actually also made more money, right? Because of our platform, they have experienced a more equitable world. That then ties to growing the economy, which is good for everyone. So for us, the money piece is not an end. It is a means to a much bigger end. Yeah, that makes That makes a ton of sense. So my last question for you is, you know, based on a post that you recently did on, on LinkedIn around, you know, three lessons for emerging female leaders. And it's a short piece, but it's mm-hmm. very powerful. And I think you've synthesized it down to, to three things that, that are really important and that are easy to remember to keep in, in front of you at all times. Can you just talk a little bit about what those three things are and, and why you think they're important? Well, they are lessons that I learned. So I am not huge on giving advice just because I kind of feel like it's me telling you what to do rather than me sharing my own experience. So I prefer to share my own experience because then it feels like I'm walking alongside you rather than walking in front of you. And I think we give a lot of advice to women. So that's also a, a thing that I try not to do. But the three lessons that I have learned along my career, the first one is about jump and the ledge will appear. This idea that, you know, we often talk about, oh, well, women are less confident than men. That's actually not true. We are just as confident as men. Uh, So what we need is to uh, not listen to that and to be brave and jump and the ledge will appear to really believe that we will uh, that we will succeed 
And it doesn't mean that it'll be easier, but that we will succeed. A, a huge part of my career growth was uh, and, and trajectory was the willingness to learn enough about something to, you know, make sure I'd be set up for success, but actually believe in my ability to make it successful, that I would make it successful no matter what. And that was the jump and the ledge will appear. The second is to center yourself in your own power, to really know that your voice matters despite what's happening around you. You know, I'm the youngest of six kids, so I think I had to learn that, quite frankly, just to survive in my family. (laughs) But I think also when you center yourself in your own power, you have the ability to speak up against things that may that may be inequitable from a place of power, from a place of the fact that you're not a damsel in distress, that you you matter and your voice matters and you you deserve to be treated equitably. So that's the second one. And then the last one is to really ground yourself in the data. I don't think that's all that surprising given that I'm a gender economist, but this idea that Gender equity is not just a social issue. It is a massive economic opportunity. I'll give you one really quick example, but bringing the data to bear in those conversations matters because it's not about me. It's about the economic opportunity for everyone. One of the things, and we talked about moms a little bit, that is a phenomenon that happens in the workplace is the motherhood penalty. That is this idea that women who are either mothers or who could just be of mother, uh, uh, childbearing age are less committed to their jobs because they're moms or because they're that age. So what that looks like is they experience opportunity gaps. They experience pay gaps. There's actually a pay gap per child. Oh. Yeah. For wow. if each child you have, the less you'll earn, the less right? You make. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Yeah. You'll, the less you'll earn. And then, of course, you have more expenses. So, yeah. However, what the research shows is that working moms are the most productive employees in the workforce over the course of their career. So as an employer, the folks that you want to invest in are working moms. Like that's an immediate lift for you. So knowing that, for instance, is, you know, arming yourself with the data and the facts about why this is an issue and why it's not just about you, but it's actually about a a broader uh, economic opportunity for everyone. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, working moms, the the master multitaskers, right? And time scarcity. Yeah. You know, we only, we have to get things done because we only have so much time, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, I I totally agree uh, with that statement. So uh, thank you for saying that. (laughs) You're very welcome. (laughs) So I think that wraps up the show. Elizabeth, do you want to close us out? Yes, thank you so much for joining us and sharing more about your career journey and, of course, your organization. We're so lucky to have had you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this session, subscribe and check out our series at fortressiq.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Hello Human.